With the holiday approaching, and as I thought about a special Thanksgiving message, my heart was drawn to two unique passages of Scripture, the first one being Luke chapter 10. So we're going to begin there. I invite you to turn with me to the third book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. We'll use this as an introduction, and then we'll springboard from here over into a second passage where we will be spending the bulk of our time this morning. But I want us to begin in Luke chapter 10 with this fascinating story that occurred in the life and ministry of our Lord. We'll pick it up in verse 17. Luke chapter 10 verse 17 tells us, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus had a masterful way of boiling issues down to the crux of the matter which is exactly what he does here. This group of 70 believers, 70 workers, had been sent out by the Lord on a short-term mission. And they returned from their short-term mission excited about the fact that Jesus had given them authority over demons. They were rejoicing in that reality. But Jesus turned their focus to the most important issue of all. He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your names are written in heaven. That, beloved, is the ultimate reason for thankfulness. If we had no other reason to be thankful, and we do have many other reasons, but if we had no other reason to be thankful, that would be overwhelming reason enough. If you are a child of God, if your name is written in heaven, then you have the ultimate reason for thankfulness. The Apostle Paul delineates what all is involved in this reality over in Ephesians chapter 1. So I want us to turn from Luke 10 to Ephesians chapter 1 where we will spend the rest of our time understanding and probing the ultimate reason for thankfulness. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 14 of this chapter, which are all one sentence in the original, by the way, one long extended sentence. These verses are some of the most profound verses in all of Scripture. In fact, you will notice as we go through them this morning that you will not fully grasp them or understand them, nor do I. They tell us what is involved in the fact that our names are written in heaven. What, did that, what does that mean? How did that come about? What does it involve? Notice how Paul begins. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The word blessed means praise or adoration or honor or glory. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What that tells us is this. When this section of Scripture is properly understood and digested, the proper response is praise. If this passage doesn't prompt you to praise, then you don't understand it. As believers joined to Jesus Christ, whose names are written in heaven, we are blessed, this verse says, we are blessed with all that God could possibly give us spiritually. Please notice that these blessings are spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Paul is not promoting the prosperity teaching, the prosperity gospel that says, because you are a Christian, God wants you healthy and wealthy. I was in the Christian bookstore a while back looking at something in one aisle and overheard in the next aisle these two ladies talking about how God wants you to have the best of everything money can buy. One of these ladies said, why is it that God's children have to drive Vegas and Volkswagens while Satan's followers drive Cadillacs? Then she went on to tell this lady how it doesn't have to be that way because God wants you to be rich. You will be very proud of me to know that I did not rudely interrupt their conversation (laughs) to tell them how off base they were. That is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is talking about spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. And the last two words of verse 3 are in Christ. By virtue of our union with Christ, all these spiritual blessings are ours because of our union with Christ. Then in verse 4, Paul goes way back to eternity past to show how we came to be in Christ eventually. Verse 4, he says, Just as he chose us to be in him before he ever laid the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Do you know why Paul blessed God in verse 3? Because he was so overwhelmed that God had chosen him before he ever laid the foundation of the world. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brother and beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation. In John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me shall come to me. In John 6, he said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now some people, when they encounter this doctrine in the Bible, teach that God looks forward in time to see who will choose him, and then he makes his choice of them. That's a nice theory, but it's not really biblical. God's choice is not based on foresight. Nowhere in Scripture does it say God's choice is based on foresight. Peter does tell us that it is based on foreknowledge, but that's a totally different word. Foreknowledge. The Bible uses the word know, K-N-O-W, to speak of intimacy. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. Joseph did not know Mary until after the birth of Jesus. So foreknowledge means God made a choice in advance to have an intimate relationship with his people but it's not based on foresight. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us 
and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. God did not look forward in time and say, oh, they're going to do pretty well. I think I'll choose them. It's not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The point is this, all the glory goes to God for our salvation because he is the one who initiated it. He's the one who chose us. There's a purpose to God's election. Verse 4 says the purpose is that we should be holy and without blame before him. Beloved, understand something. The only way we could ever be holy before God is for him to choose us, to draw us, and place us in Christ. You will never understand salvation if you don't understand the total depravity of man as taught in Romans 3. We are totally depraved, which means we are dead in trespasses and sins with no desire to seek God. There is nothing a dead person can do about his own condition. Nothing. That is why God had to work, God had to choose, God had to draw, God had to call, God had to give faith. Some people, when they hear this, they allow their logic to get ahead of themselves and they start getting all tied up in knots and they say, oh, hold it, hold it. This this doctrine sounds so unloving. Notice the last two words in verse 4, in love. In love, this entire work of God was bathed in love. Verse love says, verse 5 says, in love he predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Adoption not only describes our relationship to God, but more so it describes our position. Jesus is God's son by nature, We become God's children by grace. And catch this, our standing is the same. That's why the Bible says we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God predestined us, which means to mark out beforehand. Before God ever laid the foundation of the world, He chose and marked out beforehand those who would be His sons and daughters and love engulfed the entire process. One major epidemic that is running rampant in the church today is the identity crisis. That is why there is so much talk about self-worth and self-esteem. One man had this to say on the subject, and I quote, People today are looking for a sense of self-worth, value, and self-acceptance. They want to be somebody. They want to have an identity. A lot of solutions are being offered, but I think they all miss the point. Our society propagates all kinds of self-image books and seminars that tell people how wonderful they are, how to be successful, how to be number one, how to become an intimidator instead of being intimidated, and how to be on top. People are even tracing their roots, searching for someone important in their lineage to give them a sense of identity. All these things, however, serve only as a psychological gloss, giving people a sense of meaning when they don't know where their meaning, value, or sense of worth really is. He concludes by saying this, self-worth and a sense of significance with corresponding happiness, joy, and meaningfulness come when a person understands his position in Christ. Without Christ, people don't have any eternal value. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away, but our value 
comes because we're in Christ. That gives us self-worth, end quote. Now, you may not like all the exact wording of the quote there, but I think you get the point and agree with the point. You need to understand, if you're a child of God, you need to understand your identity in Christ and what He has done for you. Why did God do all of this? The end of verse 5 says, according to the good pleasure of His will. In other words, God's basis for predestination is not human merit, not human goodness. It is not those who will choose Him. It is according to the good pleasure of His will. Paul emphasizes the fact that God's basis for His actions is the good pleasure of His will. And what is the ultimate goal in all of this? Verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of His grace. The ultimate goal in God's choosing us and adopting us is that we would recognize His grace. That brings glory to God. You see, understand this, beloved. If, if you take credit for your salvation, if you don't attribute it to God, if you have the attitude or if you say things like this, well, I am so glad that I had the wisdom to choose Christ. I, I, I'm so glad I was so smart to choose Christ. If that's your perspective, if that's your attitude, one, you don't understand Scripture, but two, you rob God of the glory due to Him, which is something you should never want to do. So why did God initiate salvation? Why did God choose us? Why did He make us holy and blameless before His presence? Why did He predestine us unto adoption? Verse 6 tells us He did it that it might result in the praise of the glory of His grace. And when Paul mentions that word grace, he can't stop without saying something about it. So he says in verse 6, by which, this grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved One. Because of God's grace, we are in the Beloved One, Jesus Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are totally and completely accepted in God's sight. Because we are in Christ, we have all the favor of God we could possibly have. Child of God, get that truth embedded deep in your heart. In his book titled Green Letters, Principles of Spiritual Growth, Miles J. Stanford says this, and I quote, <clears throat> There are two questions that every believer must settle as soon as possible. The one is, does God fully accept me? And number two, if so, upon what basis does he do so? These verses answer both of those questions. Does God fully accept me? Yes, God fully accepts us. Upon what basis? The basis is because by His grace we are in the beloved one, Jesus Christ. And that leads Paul to talk about the saving work of the Son in verses 7 through 12. He has been talking about the selecting work of the Father. Now he will talk about the saving work of the Son. And then he will proceed to the sealing work of the Spirit. All three members of the triune Godhead are displayed here as their part in our salvation. So what is the saving work of the Son? Verse 7 says, In Him, in the Beloved One, in Him, we have redemption 
through His blood, which is the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. The word redemption was a common word used for the release of slaves or prisoners. Buying and selling slaves was so common in Paul's day, it was like buying and selling animals. One historian says that a full third of the Roman Empire was composed of slaves. One third of the entire empire. From time to time, a person would purchase a slave for the purpose of setting him free, usually because the slave was highly thought of or dearly loved or greatly cared about. That purchase and release was called, in Greek, lutrao, or redemption. To purchase and set free by paying a price. That's what happened to those of us in Christ. We were purchased out of the slave market of sin and set free. You see, we used to be imprisoned and slaves to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 6, 17 says, thanks be to God that whereas you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. In Romans 7, 14, Paul said he was sold under sin. It's always been interesting to me that unbelievers see Christians as being bound. We're all bound up. We have no freedom. We're bound by the Bible. And they see themselves as free. They're free to party and get drunk and throw up the next morning and look at pornography and commit fornication and adultery. They have all kinds of freedom. That's the kind of freedom unbelievers have. Before you were in Christ, you were a slave to sin and you were a slave to the whims, desires, values, and fads of this day and age. But when we came to be in Christ, we were delivered from the power of darkness which had a death grip on our lives. Beloved, it is so important that we understand this truth and our new position in Christ. One of the most difficult things some people have to deal with in life is pressure they feel from other people friends, relatives, co-workers, pressure they feel from other people who expect them to live a certain way in life. But listen, we don't have to live the way everybody else wants us to live. We are free to live for Christ. Now we have the power to live the way Christ wants us to live. Romans 6.18 says, Being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. We have been purchased for a price and set free. What was the price, the purchase price? Verse 7 tells us, In Him we have redemption through His blood. (coughs) It was the blood of Christ that bought us out of the slave market of sin. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold from your empty manner of life, but with the precious blood of Christ. In Revelation 5, 9, we read, and they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred, tongue, people, nation, and have made us unto our God a kingdom of priests. It was the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ shedding his blood that made it possible for us to be redeemed 
And what resulted from this redemption? Verse 7 answers the question. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, which is the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness here in verse 7 basically means to send away. Our sins have been sent away from us. They no longer cling to us. Sort of like if you've ever walked into a dark room maybe and you didn't see that there was a big spider web in front of you and you walk into this spider web and it's sort of like you're, you're pushing it. Get away. I don't want anything to do with this. That's the picture here. It's, our sin has been set away from us. It, our sins no longer cling to us. Paul is obviously drawing here from an Old Testament background because on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the, na- the Day of National Atonement, the high priest took two goats. He sacrificed one of the goats and sprinkled its blood on the altar. Then he placed his hands on the other goat's head, confessed the people's sins, and sent it out into the wilderness where it could never find its way back. And this was done to symbolize forgiveness. Taking sin, putting it on that goat, and sending it where it would never be seen again. That's what God has done for us. He has sent our sins as far away from us as the east is from the west. Our sins have been forgiven. They've been sent away, dismissed forever. All of them. All of them. Many Christians wrongly think that when they came to faith in Christ, that all their past sins were forgiven, but only their past sins. But listen, beloved, when Jesus died on the cross, all our sins were future anyway. And they've all been forgiven. And the end of verse verse 7 says that this forgiveness, this is such a powerful picture. Make sure you catch this. This forgiveness is according to the riches of His grace. It's according to the riches of His grace. God's forgiveness is not out of the riches of His grace, but according to the riches of His grace. Let me illustrate the difference. If I go to a wealthy person and I say I need $10,000 for a worthy project and he writes me out a check for $100, then he would be giving out of his riches. But if I go to another person with the same situation and he writes me a check for $15,000, he would be giving according to his riches. That's the way God gives out forgiveness. According to to the riches of His grace. But there's still more. Verse 8 says, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. Again we are told, notice that last phrase, we are told that why God does what He does is always based on on reasons totally within himself. That is why we cannot completely comprehend election, predestination, redemption, forgiveness, or any of the other facets of salvation. God does what he does for reasons within himself, and he is infinite. We are finite. What is this mystery to which verse 9 refers? It is the way in which God, through Christ, brings people back into fellowship with himself in the way he will eventually restore the entire universe. Verse 10 tells us that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, 
he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. You say all things? Does Paul really mean all things? Yes. Do you realize that the death of Jesus affects all of creation? Not just people. Romans 8 teaches us that when sin entered the world, it even affected the created world because a curse was placed on creation. That's why there are natural disasters such as earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, etc. But one day the world of creation will again be in harmony as all things will be gathered together in Christ. This little phrase here in verse 10, gathered together, or depending on your English translation, is literally summed up. That's the way the NASB, the New American Standard, translates it. The summing up of all things in Christ. Here's an interesting little fact. This term in the original language is a mathematical addition term. In Paul's day, they would add up a row of figures. You know, we add up a row of figures and we put a line under and then we put the total at the bottom. In Paul's day, they added up a row of figures and placed the total at the top. And that's this word that Paul uses here, this Greek word. So what Paul is saying here is this. At the end of the age, everything will be seen to add up to Jesus Christ. He will be on top. Because that's God's goal. That's his plan. That's his will. And verse 11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Paul says, Because we are in Christ, we have an eternal inheritance. Our inheritance includes all that belongs to Christ, if you can imagine that, because we are joint heirs with him. Why would God do this for us? Why would God predestinate us unto an inheritance? Why? Verse 11 says, It was according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, God set things up this way because this fulfills his purposes. He works all things after the counsel of his will. God doesn't get input from people to determine his actions. He doesn't say, well, what do you think? Maybe I need to get some advice from you on how to carry this out, how to pull it off. No. Romans 11.34 says, Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? God does things based on his own counsel, his own purposes, his own will, his perfect knowledge, and he has a definite goal in mind. Verse 12 says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There it is again. The goal of our salvation is God's glory. God has given us his great salvation so we would bring honor and glory to him. This thought is emphasized three times in this text. Three different times Paul says this so that he understands the motivation for why God has done this for us. And there's still more. There's not only the selecting work of the Father, there's not only the saving work of the Son, there is the sealing work of the Spirit. Notice verse 13 as Paul now transitions to the third member of the triune Godhead and his role, his part in our salvation. Verse 13 says, In him, in Christ, you trusted when you heard the word of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. When Paul refers to the word or the message here in verse 13, he calls it the word of truth. When God speaks, he speaks only the truth. That's why we say that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God. God has given us the word of truth, and that word was proclaimed to the Ephesians just as it has been proclaimed to you and to me. Paul further describes this word here in verse 13 as the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel, the Greek word gospel means good news. So this is the good news of your salvation. Listen, nothing is so good to the sinner as God's salvation. If you understand your condition, if you understand your sinful state, there is no greater news than the gospel. If you don't appreciate and understand and grasp your sinfulness and your condition, the gospel won't mean very much to you. It's sort of like you go to the doctor and you go for a physical and at the end you're about to walk out and he says, oh, by the way, I just wanted you to know that there has been a a, a, a discovery that that they've discovered how to cure this very, very rare disease which is always 100% fatal within a period of six weeks. And you say, hmm, interesting fact. You go on to go out the door and he says, by the way, you have that disease. Now that news means a lot more to you. Now it means the world to you. That's why we must understand our sinfulness if we're going to appreciate the gospel, the good news. Nothing is so good to the sinner as his rescue from all the guilt and damnation of sin plus entrance into the family of God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. The Ephesians heard this good news and they believed. Now stay with me here. They believed. Paul makes sure to emphasize that point because, listen, Yes, it is true God chooses us. Yes, it is true the Son died for us. Yes, it is true that the Spirit draws us. But you have to believe to be saved. You have to believe the gospel. You have to trust Christ. The elect, if you want to put it in theological terms, the elect are just as lost as the non-elect until the gift of salvation is appropriated through the means of faith. You're not saved, beloved, by election. You're not saved by election. You are saved by faith in Christ or through faith in Christ, which is why we proclaim the gospel and why we can say, as the Bible says, whosoever will may come. Whosoever will may come. No one is excluded. You just need to believe in Christ. The exclusion is not on God's part. It's on man's part. It's John 3. This is the condemnation. Light is coming in the world. People love darkness rather than light. People don't want the gospel. There's no such thing as a person saying, oh, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe and be saved, but I'm not elect. That's poppycock. It's ridiculous. It's it's impossible. You want to believe? You want want salvation? Come to Christ. The invitation is open to all. So Paul says, listen, you heard the gospel and you believed. We have to place our trust in Christ to be saved. And when we do that, verse 13 says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. This is such a powerful point that Paul is making, this sealing of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? What does it signify? Many things. Let me just give you a short list of what this signifies. Number one, first of all, whenever something was sealed in biblical times, it carried the idea or the thought of security. That's first and foremost. In Matthew 27, 66, 
Pilate sent a Roman guard to the tomb of Jesus to seal it and guard it. The seal stood for all the authority of Rome, and therefore it communicated security. That tomb was sealed. So when Paul says we are sealed with the Spirit, the primary thought is security. Our salvation is secure. We can't lose it. If we can lose our salvation, then the Holy Spirit is a poor, pretty poor, weak seal, which is blasphemous. Some would say, well, nothing can take your salvation away, but you can end up forfeiting it. The implication of that is that you are more powerful than the Holy Spirit, which is ridiculous. The fact that we are sealed with the Spirit, the moment we believe in Christ, is proof positive of our security. A second concept that sealing carries with it is genuineness or authenticity. John 3.33 uses the word this way, He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. That's the idea of genuineness. Roman documents were often sealed to signify authenticity. So when we believed in Christ and were sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, that was God's way of saying that we are authentically His children, truly His children. We're not counterfeits. We're not imposters. We're not tares among the wheat. We are genuinely God's children. There's a third implication of being sealed, and that is ownership. Things were sealed to indicate ownership. So when the Spirit of God sealed us, that was God's way of saying, you belong to me. We belong to God. He has marked us out with His seal. He says that we are His. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, what, don't you know that you were bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. You're, you're no longer your own. You're bought with a price. You belong to God. Another idea that comes through in the act of sealing is authority. We see this thought in Esther 8.8 8, where King Ahasuerus said to Esther, Write concerning the Jews as it pleases you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring. For the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. So that's the idea of authority. So when God says we are secure, when God says we are genuine, when God says that we belong to him, then that decree stands. The authority of God stands behind it. No one can change that. That's why Jesus said in John 10, I know my sheep, they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Never perish. Neither can anyone snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand. We we are sealed, and the authority of God stands behind that. There's at least one other concept that being sealed communicates, and that's the idea of a finished transaction. That's the way Jeremiah uses the word in Jeremiah 32.10. The last thing you do in a transaction, once it's all done, is you seal it. You put it all together and you seal it. So when we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, that was God's way of saying, we believed in Christ, we were sealed, and God says, okay, that's it. You're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're secure. The deal is complete, it's sealed. Unalterable. That's amazing, beloved, to think about this. God did all of that when he sealed us with the Spirit. But you know something even more amazing? That's still not all. Because verse 14 says this, 
The, the Holy Spirit of promise who is, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The guarantee of our inheritance. How long does this guarantee last? Until we sin too much or until we fail too much or until we blow it? Until the redemption of the purchased possession. You have been redeemed. I have been redeemed. And so this, this is the guarantee until the, the redemption of the purchased possession. Until our bodies are redeemed. The word earnest or pledge or guarantee here in this verse, depending on your translation, simply means down payment. When we were sealed by the Spirit, that was only a down payment. That was God's way of promising us that the ultimate transaction will be completed. We will get the rest of our inheritance. And what is our inheritance? It's all the glories of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and new glorified bodies. Right now, only our hearts have been made new, only the inner man. But one day our bodies will be made new and then we won't even be inclined to sin. Right now we are free from the penalty of sin, but then we will be free from the very presence of sin. This Greek word was also used to refer to an engagement ring. The seal of the Spirit is God's engagement ring to us. It's a symbol of promise that the relationship will be brought to completion when we are with the Lord, with new glorified bodies. This is remarkable. When you consider the selecting work of the Father, the saving work of the Son, the sealing work of the Spirit, why? Why has God done all of this for us? Why? The last phrase in verse 14 to the praise of His glory. Listen, you are not sealed, secure for eternity, so you can just live any way you please. The Spirit of God has sealed you so that you might be to the praise of God's glory. Some people say, well, you know, if I believed that my salvation was eternally secure, then I would just sin all I want to. My response is, I do sin all I want to. I sin more than I want to because I don't want to. God doesn't seal an unregenerate heart. He seals a regenerate heart so that we will live for His glory. And beloved, this, all of this, the selecting work of the Father, the saving work of the Son, the sealing work of the Spirit, all this is the ultimate reason for thankfulness. So I ask you this morning, is your name written in heaven? Do you know for certain that you have an eternal inheritance awaiting you? Do you know for sure that you have eternal life? Some people say, oh, be careful. That's assuming too much. No one can know for sure that he has eternal life. That's just pride if you believe that. No, it's not. It's not pride. It's assurance. And God says you can have assurance. 1 John 5, 12 and 13 says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So do you have the Son of God in your life? Do you have the Son of God in your life? If not, you don't have eternal life. You need to receive the Son of God by faith. But if you do have the Son of God in your life, by faith, you have eternal life, and you have all of this 
All of this that Paul describes in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. No wonder Jesus said in Luke, Luke's gospel, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. The ultimate reason for thankfulness. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head and close your eyes, I ask you the question, do you have eternal life? I could ask it another way. Do you have the Son of God in your life? Is Jesus Christ in your life? Have you received Him by faith? If you have, then you have eternal life. You have all of these things. All of these things that Paul delineates in Ephesians 1. And if the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is not in your life by faith, you don't have any of this. You have none of it. So turn to Jesus Christ this morning. Whosoever will may come. The Bible says that multitudes of times. Whosoever thirsts, let him come. Are you thirsty for eternal life? you thirsty to have a relationship with Jesus Christ? You, do you desire to have Jesus Christ in your life? Then come to Christ. Come to Him by faith and receive Him. And rejoice. Not that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice because your name is written in heaven. Oh, Father, what a glorious, glorious truth it is to contemplate the tremendous salvation that you have planned in eternity past and accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ, drawn by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise to assure that someday the transaction will be finished. We will not have to spend eternity in these same unglorified bodies that weigh us down. But one day the, the purchased possession will be transacted in the sense that we will have new glorified bodies and be able to enjoy our inheritance without sin clouding the way at all. No wonder Jesus said, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Father, I pray for those here this morning who are children of God, your children by faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, may you prompt and stir our hearts to rejoice. And for those who do not have Christ in their lives, may they see the emptiness, the void, the need, and today call out to Him, claiming the promise of Romans 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. May they call on His name this day and be saved and be able to rejoice at this Thanksgiving holiday that their names are written in heaven. We pray in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.